Hello and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. My name is Keenan and I'll be hosting tonight's episode again. Joining in the studio is Scout again. She's got one of her toys, so if you hear like some squeaky toy, that's what it is. Um, today we are going to talk about DNA for the most part and where DNA's role in life really lies and whether or not you can make the argument that it defines life. So one of the things we've already covered in the show is that life is all about survival. But one caveat to that is life is about survival, but not necessarily ours, if you follow me, but those of our offspring. And even on a bigger scale, they don't matter as much either. There's one thing that's been constant and that will get passed on when we're long gone and in the ground, and that's our DNA. And not necessarily the physical chemistry, like the physical strands of DNA, those won't get passed on. But the information, the A's, T's, G's, and C's, that sequence, that code, it keeps getting passed on and on and on. So the information is infinite. So this is a really cool idea, and Richard Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist, was, I think, one of the first ones to champion this. And he wrote kind of a book about it. He called it The Selfish Gene in that when DNA is replicating and, you know, it makes RNA and it makes proteins and that's how cells function and that's how ultimately organisms function. You can always look up little videos for that if you want. It's that the organism is a vessel for the gene, for the DNA. Stronger genes make stronger organisms that pass on those genes and they continually do that. So, obviously, I mean, this is kind of a weird concept, the idea that life is information being passed on. But if you think about it, how much DNA you share, you know, 10, 20, 50 generations back, it's essentially, that's what's lasting. You know, we are very finite beings. You know, we last anywhere from zero to 120 years, right? But the genetic code and the information that those genes code for, that make our cells run and us survive, that's, that's always been going on. That's passed on every generation. We talked about the first mammals to emerge after the KT event, after the meteor hit the dinosaurs. We share DNA, you know, DNA information, genetic code with those precursor mammals. You know, so a lot of these genes have been going and going and going. It still means that genes are trying to survive, quote-unquote. They want to build the strongest organism vessel around them. They want to be surrounded by the strongest shield possible so that they can make it. This actually comes down to, you know, the, the true hypothesis of this, this whole idea is that when things first started out, DNA was just on its own, out in the open, and the Earth is a very harsh place. The first DNA that managed to code for a protein that could engineer like protection around it, like a plasma membrane, like of lipids, so a little like fat globules, they actually surrounded the DNA and then it was protected. That was probably the first cell, for example, and we know that there was a first cell out there one day, and that DNA suddenly had all the advantage because it was going to survive and pass its information on. So it's not necessarily a 
purely scientific concept, and that's why I really enjoy it, I think, is that you have to give credit where credit's due to the idea that nothing passes on except the information of survivors. You know, it's it's kind of the ultimate winners write the history book type of sentiment. And obviously, you know, there are changes as you accumulate over time, you know, mutations happen, genetic variation, things like that. But they're only going to pass on if they're advantageous. So you come from a long line of survivors. If you think about it, any time that an organism doesn't reproduce, that DNA lineage, even if it's just small, is for the most part gone. We'll actually we'll actually take a look at why that's not always the case as long as you have siblings, though. So DNA as information equals life. It's a very cool idea. Think about it next time that you know you you look into ancient history books and you see you know certain certain organisms because your cells share a lot of the same mechanisms and thus a lot of the same genes and they've been succeeding this whole time um so we get i want to get into this theme of family then so not only do you have your own genes and you are you are engineered to survive everything about you has made you want to survive and pass everything on so, and that's, and like I'm about to say, there's caveats to this, but while you are 100% of your own genes, your parents and your siblings are also share 50% of your DNA. Now, everything that has evolved and succeeded has had a drive to survive, essentially. You couldn't have made it if, you know, there was a precursor ancestor that was like, well, I guess I'm going to get eaten too bad. They don't make it, and those genes are never going to pass on. Non-survival genes, like non-do-anything-to-survive, you know, they're not going to make it. So this brings up a really good point about family that one of my high school biology teachers kind of illustrated. Think about a brother and a sister, and, or a mom and a, you know, a sibling, and a, or a son and a daughter and a parent, anything. If you saw your parent one of your parents going into oncoming traffic, but you also saw another person that was going to get hit by the car. Every single time, if you have the choice, your instincts will get you to get your loved one out of the way. There's deep biology in this. This isn't just, you know, human psychology. This is animal biology. This is genetics all at play. And it's because your DNA is inside your family member's. Their success and their survival means that your DNA is going to get passed on. Because remember, with a sibling, for example, you share 50%. So that means that their offspring are going to be 25% of your genes. And evolutionarily, we want to ensure that survival any way necessary. So I think the high school biology teacher, he kind of said, would you do anything to protect your sibling? You know, you may not be able to rise out of that, you know, out of your seats right now and do anything now. But if the moment came, you would feel it. It's just instinct. It's what every piece of evolution that we've ever been through has engineered our, you know, our ancestors to do. So this brings out, he brought up a good point. Actually, I don't know if it was him. You bring up a good point about bees. So bees, all the worker bees are sisters and they're working together to survive. And the way that the chromosomes divide, so usually in humans, it's one from mom, one from dad. With bees, the male only contributes a little bit, 
because they're just little drones and then they go off. So bee sisters actually share 75% of their DNA. And that's why when one of the bee workers is in distress and she sends signals, all of the other workers come to protect her because that's their DNA. That's They're so close to being exact, they're clones almost. You are there to protect your DNA. And sometimes this is, this is the crazy part is that enough worker bees to survive, to, um, to protect the colony, a number will sacrifice themselves because they know and they've been engineered that this move is going to be a, you know, a good thing. They've been engineered to mathematically sacrifice a certain amount of bees through a certain amount of signal so that the colony lives on and thus their genes will still keep living in all of their sisters and all their siblings. So it's pretty crazy. And it's a really cool way to look at things. Um, obviously humans, you know, we love our family. I think, like I said before, there's some abstract in what we are and I think we can go past, you know, the concepts that I just talked about a lot. And I think it's a special thing. So the next story is another good one. It's one of my favorites and I call it the wolf and his brother. So when people started finally doing wolf research instead of just shooting them, they noticed that in these great big packs, there were alpha males and they're usually siblings. So when, let's say there were two brothers and they were the alpha males of a group of, let's say, eight, nine, ten wolves. Let's say you're watching them in Yellowstone. And this is somewhat reflective of what the researchers saw. They would see, or let's say you had three brothers. They would see two of the three wolf brothers come to adolescence and breed with the females in the pack. One of the wolves did not, however, one of the wolves did not breed. And they watched and they watched and they watched. And they didn't understand why he wasn't, why he didn't want to have a litter of pups. Each of his brothers had a litter of three, four pups. But he didn't. He was strong. He was well-fed. He was, at, you know, athletic, great hunting wolf. He contributed all kinds to the pack. And the researchers could not figure out why he wasn't, why he wasn't breeding. Why, why not pass those genes on? Aren't they, they're going to go to waste. Why isn't, why isn't he breeding? And they figured out after a long time, after doing research on other packs, that if the third brother were to have a set of pups, that would bring the total to around 10 pups, three, three, and three, and four, maybe. What happens, and they would observe this in some other packs when, let's say, three alpha males out of three did all have pups, is that with all three of the alpha males trying to feed their own three young and take care of them, ultimately they lost like seven out of the ten because things were so spread out, you know, everybody was trying to get their own, you know, one kill or two kills, it just wasn't enough. And they saw that the pack was worse off for that when all three would have siblings or all three would have offspring, sorry. So going back to the wolf, the one out of three that never had any pups, they found out that he was using his energy not to hunt for his own offspring, but to take care of and hunt for his brother's offspring. And this was, nobody knew what was going on back then. Because remember, we didn't know enough about DNA. We were only doing wildlife biology at this point. What they called it was 
altruism. And altruism is essentially that this wolf was just doing it to help. And there was some instinct inside of it that told it never to breed, to never expend resources on its own offspring, but to just help. And mathematically, what we know now is that through his nieces and nephews that were born to his two siblings, he's actually going to pass on, you know, because remember, those are 25% of his DNA. Each one of them is going to pass on and survive. So instead of having 10 offspring going down to three or two because none of them survived, if he takes care of his nieces and nephews, the six of them, they all six survive. And he nets more genetic fitness from that. And so that altruism, as we can call it, even though we, you know, we know it's not, we know that he's doing this because there's an innate signal triggered by the environment, perhaps, and somewhere in his genetics that says, you take care of your nieces and nephews because they are you, you know, you know, they pass on your genes. And we found this and it was, you know, mathematically it worked out and it was like, wow, there are behaviors and signals that cause these wolves to you know, they behave altruistically almost, but in, in reality, they're passing their genes on. They're doing a better job of it. And th this has been theorized, and I'm saying this with a heavy dose of salt because, you know, you can't test this in a scientific community. Um, this has been theorized to why certain people, certain human beings, do not prefer their own sex. And for the longest time, people would, you know, say hateful things and say, how is that possible? They're not passing on their genes, blah, blah, blah. And there's so much more at work that, you know, you can find out if you just take the deeper look. And these wolves were one of those first examples that people started theorizing. Now, I'm I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, I don't, I don't know what the, the pure thing is. I mean, any human phenotype is going to be genetically and environmentally driven. And, you know, obviously I don't think we have the tools to determine anything um, about like any one, you know, really, uh, really varied phenotype. But that's a lot of the theory. And this is one of my, this story is actually very close to what one of my professors uh, told me. And I've, it always really stuck with me as something, you know, just purely amazing that these behaviors could be ingrained. So really cool stuff and it's one thing like that I'll tell my parents you know some of the time that you know with this DNA thing being the idea that you know DNA and information is life you know I always tell them you know you know we love each other haha because you know you know I am you too you know I am literally I am literally a mix of two people and I think that's something that you know you never look at your parents the same way <laughs> So it's a very cool thing to see things from that perspective. It gets a little wiry, obviously, but it's it's super cool to understand that that biological connection comes from that chemistry and those genetics in a lot of ways. So very cool stuff. I think we'll end the episode close to that. And yeah, I mean, definitely share these stories. I think they're amazing. That's why I wanted to share them, you know, from people that were a lot smarter than me when I was learning these. And I think what I really like about stories like this is that biology versus science is a big thing that I always try and differentiate. Science is a process, how we do our best to find facts and truth. But biology, you know, most of this stuff is settled science and it's really fun to just talk about, you know. 
and that's what the whole point of this podcast is, is to kind of be a kind of Freakonomics, but for biology. I can spare all of you guys all the toil <clears throat> of looking through textbooks, things like that, to find out all these, you know, how things operate in a lot of cases. So tune in next week again. And speaking of wolves, Scout is now sleeping, no longer playing with toy. It was too much effort. So they've certainly come a long way. Let's be honest here. <laughs> in any ways, have a good night and we'll see you next time. <laughs>